0: To the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Integra X Files, a place where we'll explore and solve for the X factor that will help reshape the future of long term care pharmacy. Join us to discuss topics and insights that will help you discover ways to grow your pharmacy. Stay up to date on important legislative and regulatory issues, learn best practices for operating a profitable pharmacy business, and unlock the mysteries of technology.
1: Good morning. Uh, Welcome to this session of the Integra X-Files Pharmacy Podcast. I'm Ed Vest, the Director of Pharmacy Professional Affairs from Red Cell Technologies, and our guest today is Ms. Susan Rodas. Susan, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Thanks, Ed. Um, my name is Susan Rodas. I am a pharmacist by trade, and I work for Jerry Med, um, which is a long-term care GPO and PSAO. Um, I have been working in long-term care for about 38 years and in, um, in at Jerrymed for 32 years and have um, done a lot of work in long-term care for those years for all the pharmacies out there doing long-term care.
1: Yeah, I'm glad to have you with us, and uh Proud to say that I was a JerryMig customer about as long as you've been there, so uh, that's good. So uh, this is session two of a two-part series on the medical at home model, also known as LTC Pharmacy at Home, uh, for pharmacies providing services to qualifying patients. In session one, and I would encourage you to uh, go back and see session one if you haven't seen it. We focused on the definitions, what medical at home model is, the patient requirements, pharmacy requirements, and just started getting into the payer model. In session two today, we're going to recap some of the highlights of session one and then dive into what a pharmacy needs to do to begin the assessment and the implementation of this model. I think Susan and I are both excited about this opportunity for pharmacists. I think it's something that uh, is going to help the healthcare system in overall, but specifically for those uh, that want to continue or want to have those services that they need without going into a facility. So session one recap, uh, Susan touched on the concept is beneficial to the patient, the pharmacy, the physician, societal health, and it saves money because we can provide this care uh, to the patient much less expensive, more efficiently than others. One of the things Susan pointed out, and and I often have to remind people, when when we say long-term care, we're not just talking about skilled nursing homes. These are assisted living facilities, group homes. Uh, There's a lot of uh, patient classifications that fit into the long-term care definition. The medical at home patient must meet certain criteria. They have to be in a community dwelling for adults or children, uh, they have to have some functional or, and or medical Im- impairments that prevent them from leaving their homes independently, and they must require assistance with two or more activities of day- daily living, ADLs as we call them in, in the business, and the pharmacy must also uh, provide certain services to meet the criteria. We talked about those uh, criteria in session one, and we're not in this alone. There's a coalition of pharmacy organizations uh, that are working to create processes and standards for the service. So, Susan, let's let's talk about some of the additional services pharmacies should offer to the medical at home patients.
0: Sure, we can talk about, about those. The, the basic criteria is for the pharmacies to follow the 10 criteria from CMS that we reviewed on the first um, podcast. Um, and I, I do get a, a lot of questions from a lot of people that say, hey, you know, I I have, you know, I can't um, do an IV room. I don't have a hood. I don't have a sterile room. I can't mix IVs. How am I going to provide IV services? Well, the, the big deal with IV services is that you have to have the capacity to do those services. And so what what do you do if you don't have a hood? Well, you can get a contract with your local hospital who's already making IVs in the sterile environment, and have a subcontract with them to provide any of those services you need. Um, If you think about someone at home, the amount of of IV services that you're going to need is probably pretty low. Um, More and more of the technology out there has gotten people to be able to do things like sub-Q injections and, and other types of things versus doing an IV, unless you're talking about someone who's very sick. Um, and then you may have a home healthcare nurse that may be coming in to assist with the, with those type of products. And you just need to get the medication to those patients is all you're doing. So that's one piece. Um, things like uh, pharmacy on call service. And they say, well, you know, I have people that are 50 miles away from me that I'm providing these services to. I can't really ask my pharmacist to drive 50 miles at midnight to go get a medication to somebody if they need it right away. Well, there are several companies out there that offer Um, off-hour services where they will actually go and get a drug filled for that patient and deliver it to um, that patient's home. Um, And you don't have to do it yourself. And you can set it up that you're answering the phone and taking those uh, particular prescriptions over the phone and getting all the information that you need. And then you're providing it back to that service or you can have the service actually do all of that. So those are two ways that you could actually provide that type of service and then compounding if you have tricky compounding and you're not you don't feel capable of doing that in your pharmacy you can also contract that out with a local pharmacy that is doing those complicated um, services that are out there so that's another thing that you can also do
1: so uh we both had the opportunity to talk to a lot of consultant pharmacists here raised recently uh how would you see them being able to assist a pharmacy in in implementing this because i know there's uh, like the medication review in home how how do you see a consultant pharmacist being able to help
0: so i mean i think i think if you if we're going to have this really as long term care at home then doing a, a regular monthly drug regimen review is going to be an important piece of this um and you know some people are saying well it's difficult to get medical records it's difficult to see what's going on with them but more and more You know, across the board, you're seeing electronic health records out there, whether you're at home or you're in a hospital or you're at the doctor's office. And more and more pharmacists are getting access to that information. Um, So that may be something that's complicated and hard in the beginning for you to get access to it, but there is no reason why a pharmacist, as a pharmacist, cannot get access to medical records, you know, whether it's in the EPIC system or whatever system that that particular um physician is using or that hospital is using my chart or whatever, you should be able to get access to those records to review them. Um, and if you don't have them, you should have access to all of their prescription drugs and everything that they're taking. And if you're working with a home health care agency, they're going to have a lot of that information that you need. So they can definitely participate by doing those things. And I think some of the things that are really important that the a consultant can do is going to be things like medication reconciliation. You know, when these people walk out of the hospital, the amount of drugs that they're on that are wrong is incredible. Um, You know, to see people get put on multiple, um, they they don't even keep in the hospital, they don't keep multiple statins, they don't keep multiple calcium channel blockers, they don't keep any of these things on there. They have one that they give to everybody while you're there. Um, So it is really complicated to see all the things that you have out there. Um, and, and it's very important to make sure that that pharmacist is reviewing that so somebody's not getting duplicate therapy or forgetting one of the products that they need. Um, that happened to my mother-in-law when she was in the hospital. She'd been taking Synthroid for years and years and years, and they never gave it to her in the hospital. And then they said, oh, wait a minute, we just drew this lab and uh, you need to be on some Synthroid. We're like, uh, we told you that. So <laughs> it's like incredible to see some of the crazy things that happen out there. So med rec is super important. Um, synchronization of medications. You don't want to be having to run out to the patient's home and changing medications all the time. So getting that set up and putting that into that packaging More than likely a pouch pack with the time of the day that the patient needs to take the medication is the best way to do this to ensure adherence. So you want to deliver that medication, you know, on a monthly basis. And so you need to synchronize all their medications. The other piece of that is, you know, you may have to do some of your patients sooner than 30 days. You may have to go out. If somebody's changing medications a lot, maybe they just got out of the hospital. You might have to do it every seven days or every 14 days until they get to the point where they're actually stable on their medications.
1: So, Susan, how would you determine if your pharmacy can service these patients as an LTC pharmacy? And I'm thinking more of the, the combo shop pharmacies or maybe a, uh, a retail pharmacy, a community pharmacy that's thinking about this uh, service.
0: So, I mean, I think it's really important to take a look at what kind of services that the patient needs. Um, if, if does a patient need is can the patient drive to the grocery store or to the pharmacy to go pick things up? If they can do that, they don't qualify. Um, that's somebody who may want to get packaging for convenience versus a need. Um, And that's extremely important to to differentiate between convenience versus need. Because if it's for convenience, you can do it, but you got to bill it as retail. And that's not medical at home. And you don't have to do any of the extra work that we're talking about to service those patients. And you can charge them extra for doing that packaging. Although, you know, with Amazon PillPack, they're doing this stuff basically for free. think they're losing a lot of money doing it, but they're out there doing that today. So it can't be for convenience. They have to need the service. Um, Is a patient responsible for their own uh, administration of the medication? Are they able to take their medication on their own? Are they able to sort out their vials and put them in their little packages if they have a lot of medications? If they can do all that on their own, they don't qualify. But if they're having issues with that, or if they have a caregiver giving them their medications on a daily basis, it could be a family member, it could be home health care agency, it could be, you know, whoever, it doesn't have to be someone who is qualified as far as a medical professional to do it. It could be somebody who is, like I said, a family member who's helping them on a daily basis, you know, not the daughter who comes in there and sorts their medications once a month for them. I'm talking about someone who literally helps them daily those people would qualify. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, traditional mail order or traditional pill pack does not qualify for this type of service. You're not doing anything but getting the medication to that patient and that's it. You're not getting anyone else out there to really assist this patient and they're able to do a lot of this on their own.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we, we talked uh, uh, before about this is a valuable service and it's good, but when somebody asks specifically what is what, what makes the medical at home or LTC pharmacy services important, what do you tell them? Things like adherence and what, what else?
0: Probably adherence is probably one of the most important things out there because that is one of the major issues why people end up in the ER or end up in, in the hospital is because they – They don't take their medications appropriately. Um, And by appropriately, I'm talking about, you know, right med, right time, right drug, all those things that we got taught in pharmacy school. So, you know, if you're you're having somebody who's taking too much of a medication, not enough of a medication, taking things at the wrong time to cause a problem, those are all reasons why adherence is so important. And and you talk about something like compliance. People say, well, isn't compliance adherence? Well, kind of, but compliance could be you know, somebody gets a new prescription and never gets it filled. To me, that's someone who's non-compliant because they're not even starting to take the medication, or someone who takes the medication for a month. Um, we have we talked to some uh, drug manufacturers before with brand name drugs, and they said the hardest thing they had to do was to get somebody to take a drug for more than thirty days because someone's taking a anti. Um, hypertensive drug and they take it for 30 days and they think it's like an antibiotic. They take it for 30 days, they're cured. Well, no one explained to that person that they have to take it for the rest of their lives. So making sure that people are both compliant and adherent to their medications is really important. I mean, this country spends millions of dollars um, and billions of dollars because people are going in the hospital because they're not taking their medications appropriately. Um, and, and if you think about it, even Physicians, if you go into a physician's office and, you know, Mrs. Jones is on, and I always use Lasix just because it's easy, but I mean, she's got 40 milligrams of Lasix and she still has edema and the doctor increases it to 80. Well, maybe the reason why the Lasix isn't working is because she's not taking it because she gets up all the time and has to go to the bathroom. So increasing it to 80 is not going to solve a problem. I mean, finding out why, you know, and she's going to sit there and say she's taking it even if she's not. So actually getting people to be adherent and figuring something out for a patient who doesn't want to take something like that product is really important. She's the one who's going to end up in the hospital with congestive heart failure. You know, she's the person who you really have to worry about because she's not taking her medication. And if the pharmacist can help and intervene as a healthcare provider, then they may be able to suggest something different or moving her drug around or giving her it, it a different way. Um, there's a lot of things that the pharmacist can make suggestions on to assist that patient in in being more compliant with their medications. Um, And probably the biggest thing is, you know, again, decreasing hospitalization and emergency room visits and even decreasing admission to nursing homes and assisted living. Those cost a lot of money to our system. Um, Assisted living, it makes those patients lose a lot of money because they're paying exorbitant amounts of money to live there. Um, but in addition to that, you know, more than likely you're going to have higher costs even for the healthcare system if they're in assisted living because they're being treated differently than they would be in their home. Um, you know, and I always joke around and say, well, you know, the food's a lot better at home than it is in assisted living or a nursing home, too. So, and you know, if the pe- person's eating better, you got a lot of these people who are super skinny. And, and not eating correctly. And if they're able to eat at home and eat the foods that they like, then they're going to be healthier as well. Um, and, and, of course, the biggest deal is it's cheaper. You know, it's much cheaper to have somebody live in their home than it is to live in one of these facilities or go to the hospital all the time.
1: So one of the first questions I get from a pharmacy uh, that, that's, gotten into the thought process and I'm talking right now, uh, not a closed door LTC pharmacy, but either a small combo shop or maybe just uh, a community pharmacy is thinking about getting into this. The ones that have gotten into the process to think about the billing component ask whether or not they need to get a separate NCPDP number to fully, uh, leverage the reimbursement that they that they would get. So I'm sure you get that question as well.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, and it's an important piece to understand. Having a separate NCPDP number and NPI number allows you to have a separate PSAO, a long term care PSAO to work with so that you can bill at the different rates um, for the services that you provide, especially if you're doing assisted living and group homes and skilled facilities, all of those, you definitely are going to see an increase in reimbursement and no DIR fees, which is a big thing everybody wants to hear. Now, so you say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm only doing medical at home. That's what my pharmacy wants to do. So, okay, what do I do? Well, it's important too, because there's certain um, of the Uh, programs one you can there's a couple of plans that allow you to actually to bill as a skilled facility and then they're small plans I won't say that they're big plans or small plans and it depends on the PSAL you belong to whether or not those are available or not Um, and then the second piece with that is um, you can decrease your DIR fees you may get a retail rate but you don't have DIR fees happening um, for those particular plans. Now, I'm not going to say that happens with every single one because it doesn't. Um, and there are several of the larger plans that you're still going to pay DIR fees on, but it's significant dollars for you to do that for sure.
1: And, and with the uh, changes in the DIR fees coming up uh, January of 2024, that would be critical for cash flow is to not have them hit you. Right, right. Uh, I know that uh, NCPDP added uh, a level of service for medical at home. I think it's the level of service zero seven for medical at home.
0: So, yes. Yeah, so that has actually been approved. It was approved in 2015. It was in the ECL um, list that NCPDP has out in 2017. That is the ones that approved this. So if you are a, uh, if you are a, plan that has a contract with a long term care psao and you have decided that you're going to pay these at the same rate then you have an opportunity to use that level of service of 7 which actually means medical at home with special pharmacy services identical to long term care beneficiaries with the exception of emergency kits and and logs so those two things that are on that list of 10 things you don't have to do emergency kits and, and we when we did this we put that in there because we know no one's going to put extra drugs in somebody's house. That's just a you know a place for disaster to happen if somebody were to get into that kit. The only place that really happens is in hospice that you have a kit um, that somebody would have available for pain management. Um, but you really do not see that in in a home. You would not want that. So that was actually written into the code from NCPDP, and as you know, NCPDP is the holy grail for doing all of your billing, and they are the ones who set up all the coding for do this and that and that actually passed unanimously which um I was very shocked at because you you know you got PBMs out there who balk at everything they have to pay more money at and they actually all approved it so I was pretty excited when that happened however you know the big deal is that you have to negotiate with the plans to pay this extra money and to allow that level of service code to go in there anytime you change coding in their systems you're talking about money And so every time you want to do this, you have to you have to go back to them and say, okay, well, how long is it going to take for you to change this coding? And that, I think, has been one of the barriers to getting this done is that piece, Um, as well as these guys don't want to pay more money. I mean, let's bottom line is that's what they want to do. And they'll use excuses like, oh, well, we our programmers backed up for three years. We can't do anything for all that time. You know, so both of those things I think are important to consider.
1: So I, I sat in on your session at uh, NCPA only for the LTC pharmacy group, and I remember one of the cautions that you gave everybody was make sure you use the patient. If you're doing medical at home, make sure you, sure you use the proper patient residence code.
0: Yes, that is super important. There are people out there who think you should be able to use a four as assisted living for these patients. Uh, do not use a four unless you want to get audited, unless you want to have money taken back. Um, you're doing a violation of a, of a contract. Um, and people say, well, people told me they can do it and you're getting paid. Well, we know for sure. And I'll, I'll be more than happy to tell you, Caremark is auditing for this. Um, that's the biggest payer you have on there. And if they catch you, they're going to take that money back for sure. Um, so that's a risk that you take by doing that. And technically, if you think about it, if you put down someone's in assisted living and they live in their home, You're not putting the right information down. That is incorrect. Um, And so anytime you put incorrect information down, I mean, people have been audited for using the wrong NDC number for the same drug. So if they're going to look at an NDC number for a generic drug, they're going to look for this type of thing also. Um, And I would be careful, you know, they they have their ways of getting this information out. They can pick up the phone and call the beneficiary and ask them, where do you live? Person says they live in their home. You know, you you're going to have your money taken back. Um, so, please make sure that you bill correctly. We're we're trying to protect the pharmacies out there. That's an important piece. We don't want people doing the wrong thing now because we have a chance of getting this done correctly. And um, you know that just basically makes it harder to negotiate these contracts. If people are out there saying, "Well, people are incorrectly billing. Why do we want to do this?" You know, so it's really important to build the correct number or correct coding.
1: So, with with the billing, uh, I don't think CMS has approved any or required any additional fees for this service yet. Is that correct?
0: So they came out with a letter in December 15th of 21 and basically said to people, um, you can send to the PBMs. It was sent to all of the uh, PBMs, all the plans. Technically, it's all the plans, sponsors. Um, they get these letters, but it's the PBMs who implement everything. They basically said, you can pay for this because there was people questioning whether they could or could not pay for a higher rate for someone living in their home. So they said, you can do it. Now, CMS is not required to um, mandate anything. They cannot get in the negotiation space to say, hey, you have to do this. All they can do is tell people that they can do it and encourage people to do that. Basically, what they said is if the pharmacy is providing institutional level of service, to these patients, which they define by their 10 criteria, then you should pay them the higher amount. But they said that's a recommendation and they don't have to do it. So again, you got to go back to negotiating with these individual plans to get this paid for.
1: Okay. So I I know you're part of the uh, coalition of groups that are working on a strategy to assist pharmacies in this. Uh, Could you talk just a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. And it's actually moving forward a little bit. So there's two pieces to this. There is um, the the executive committee, which is made up of ASCP, the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, NCPA, which is the National Community Pharmacy Associations, and SCPC, which is the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition, those three associations, and then the three uh, long-term care GPOs. So it's Med. MHA, and Innovatics, Those three groups um, are also on the executive committee. I mean, They have a steering committee that's made up of about 15 pharmacies who either have said that they're interested in doing this seriously, or they're already doing this. Um, I believe there's about seven or eight of those pharmacies that are doing this in some capacity. There's several, probably five or six, that are only doing this. Um, and are already involved in the services. So they're getting advice from them. And the idea is to define the patients on a standard level. So what is the patient qualifications? And then the second piece is also to define um, what services have to be provide, but provided by the pharmacy. Um, and it's, it's kind of a two-tiered type approach because going to the PBMs and talking to them is a way to get the dispensing fees higher. But in addition to that, we really want to get paid for the clinical services. And I say clinical with quotes in it because that gets people all bent out of shape when you say that to the payers, not to us. We want to talk about clinical services, but to the payers, they get really crazy about that. So all the extra services that pharmacies can do, the reconciliation, synchronization, the medication reviews, the medication management, um, doing a real, um, you know, mtm program that's real not the fake stuff that the plants do today Um, we talked about that actually at our last meeting and that it's really not mtm it's more what drugs can we move people to that are cheaper for the plan (laughs) that's really what an mtm is today so all of those things are really important um and all of that plays into this we want both pieces of it to be able to get paid for so that the pharmacies can be not only paid for their dispensing, but also paid for their for their extra services that they're doing for these patients.
1: Uh, one of the other comments that you made at uh, at the NCPA LTC group presentation was about attestation requirements. And I've circled that in red.
0: Um, so that's again, that's going to be based on that standardization on what is required for a patient. Um, to In order to participate in this, we have kind of a draft document that we've been using um, as, as to what we think it should be that actually the coalition has that information from us. And it's kind of we're we're working through all of that. A lot of that stuff has already been put in, into into place as far as understanding that. Um, but then in addition to that. Um, what we're saying is, and today you don't have to have that if you're not getting paid by the couple of companies that are actually paying for medical at home or long-term care at home, um, but you do need to have it in place um, going forward. I think if I was a pharmacy and I was doing this, I'd probably go ahead and get the attestations because that way you've got something on file. So if somebody hits a button and says, go, you've already got everything done and ready. In place already and it, it doesn't need to be signed by necessarily the physician taking care of them you could do that if you don't feel comfortable doing it you could get the prescriber to sign off on it or a nurse practitioner or you know a home health care nurse to sign off on it but as a pharmacist you are a healthcare care professional you can sign off on it and keep that in your pharmacy so that you're ready to go if somebody comes and says oh wait a minute we have PBM XYZ is going to go ahead and pay for the services, and you already have it done for all of those patients.
1: A big question that uh, other pharmacies have after the NCPDP question is whether or not they need to sign with a LTC focused PSAO.
0: So I think it's extremely important. You're not going to get the reimbursement. Um, If you're going to want the reimbursement without the DIR fees, you have to be with a long-term care uh, GPO at PSAO. Um, it's very important, or you're going to get paid regular retail and DIR fees are going to come out of it. So I think that's a super important piece. And you really need to look at how many patients you're servicing. Um, we actually recommend that it should be around 100 patients on the medical and home side. If you're doing um, group homes and assisted living, you can actually be justify it with about 25 patients but if you're doing only medical at home, it should be about a hundred. Um, and that's because again, you're talking about getting retail rates for most of those patients. So your benefit isn't really going to kick in until you have about a hundred patients.
1: That's great information. Uh, it, that, that's a much lower number than I was uh, expecting. So that that's encouraging. So just to summarize a couple of the key points, um, and Susan jump in here if we need, if you need to clarify any of this, but not all patients qualify just because they want it. doesn't mean that they're going to qualify for medical at home. I think you said convenience versus need. That's, that's a great uh, description of that. The pharmacies must meet the LTC pharmacy requirements uh, with the exception of emergency boxes. Um, The LTC pharmacy service type code uh, within the NCPDP is going to be needed to optimize reimbursement. So, you need that separate NCPDP number. A PSAO is going to be critical to leveraging your reimbursement and making sure that you are doing things right. It's also going to help you with the contracting uh, because they're going to do the contract for you. For me, a takeaway is the concept's evolving, it's in its infancy. Um, I think there have been pharmacies that have been doing this for decades, uh, just out of goodwill. Um, but now it's time to standardize a process, formalize the process, and be reimbursed accordingly. Uh, you, there are some great resources for information out there. Uh, Susan mentioned uh, American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, ASCP, uh, the National Community Pharmacy Association, NCPA, has a long-term care division, which is actively involved, the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition. And I'm going to give a shout out to Susan uh, at JerryMed. She has been a great resource to me for questions that I've had. Uh, I would encourage you to uh, at least consider, uh, maybe reach out and get more information from JerryMed or one of the other LTCPSAOs. Um, I do know that um, Jerry Med uh, does have a lot of combo shops. So for the retail folks that are considering getting into this, that you know, make a call, get more information. Um, I I appreciate all this information, Susan. I, I I always learn something every time I talk to you. You have any closing comments?
0: Well, I just want to add that, you know, I I want to make sure people understand that there is no easy button to do this. Um, If you're deciding you're going to do this because you think it's easy, don't do it (laughs) because it is not easy. We don't want this to be easy. We want this to be part of pharmacies' ability to grow in what they do. Um, And I think the other piece that's really important is to understand that there are a lot of people who are will be um, needing these services in the next 10 to 15 years, um, you're going to have the most people over the age of 80. The average age in a nursing home is 85. So you're talking to people who have the chronic conditions that need all this care. Will be in that position. So if you can get involved on the ground floor, like Ed's talking about, this is the beginning of all of this. You're going to be in a position to service a lot of these patients going forward for years to come. Um, and I really believe that the, that you know now is the time for pharmacists really to have. Um, you know, provider status and a lot of states are doing that. And I think hopefully we'll eventually get that in the in the government um, nationally to be a Part B provider. Um, but in the meantime states are doing it. Jump on the bandwagon if you're not doing that in your state and this is an opportunity to demonstrate what you can do out there. Um, and there's other places to go to get paid for those services. Um, we have a, a pharmacy that's in uh, Philadelphia area, works with an ACO. Um, and she gets paid by the ACO to do this work. She's decreased their hospitalizations from, an, you know, in the 30% range of rehospitalization to 8%. I mean, that is unheard of. No one does that. So the ability of her services to do that is really something special. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you want to be doing. It's time for people, you know, it's obvious to us that if the patients take the right drugs, they're not going to the hospital. But unfortunately, it's not obvious to everyone. And so, you know, that's another piece of the coalition is gathering data and getting all that information. So I think all of that stuff is so important. Um, And if you miss stuff on listening to this, please re-listen to it again. Um, If you got questions, you can always email me, email Ed, and he can get the message to me. Um, You know, we want to answer questions and make make sure people do this right because that's going to determine, you know, that this whole process goes forward is doing it correctly building the right codes, making sure you're taking care of the right patients, making sure you're doing the right services. That's all going to be really important to make sure that we can go forward and really enhance what we're doing to take care of these people who really need our help. And that's kind of the bottom line with all of this.
1: It it is indeed. And you said a couple of things in there that reminded me that uh, encourage all pharmacies. Uh, You need to be a member of your state pharmacy association because that's who Uh, lobbies on your behalf uh, within the state Uh, pharmacy regulations are pretty much state-specific so you need to be an active member of your state pharmacy Association but you also need to be a member of the national pharmacy organization that most closely aligns with your practice Uh, NCPA uh, great great community presence, and with their long-term care division, they're expanding into the combo shops and some closed-door pharmacies, Uh, American Society of Consultant Pharmacists for the consultant pharmacists as well as uh, uh, closed-door pharmacy providers, and then, then the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition. But also, remember who's working on those contracts for you, and that's your PSAO. So make sure that you're engaged with your PSAO. If you're going to expand your uh, scope of practice, make sure that your PSAO is capable of doing that. And and you may need to have two PSAOs, uh, but that's something to investigate. So, As Susan said, if you have any questions, please reach out to me. I'm ed.vest at redcelltechnologies.com. You can get a hold of me. Uh, if I can answer it, I will. If I can't, I will lean on Susan. She's used to me doing that. So, uh, on behalf of Red Cell Technologies, uh, like thank you for joining us on this session. Uh, if you have any questions, reach out. I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Integra X Files. Subscribe today at IntegraXFiles.com and be entered to win a pair of Apple AirPods Max. Integra knows software is only part of running a successful long term care
0: pharmacy. Get easy access to thought leading content on operations, growth, technology, and policy at IntegraXFiles.com. Giveaway entry period ends November 30th, 2022.